Greetings, this is Connor J. Nepo with part two of the Anarcho Status of Spain by Brian Kaplan. And here we go. The Urban Collectives. Burnett Bolton was the first mainstream historian to document the radical social changes that occurred in Republican Spain. Most earlier historians took the disclaimers of the Republican government at face value in spite of the fact that the Republicans had every reason to conceal this radicalism in order to win military assistance from Britain and France. Bolton explains that the CNT, and to a lesser extent the UGT, took advantage of the chaos to seize control of the means of production. Quote, In Valencia, a city of over 350,000 inhabitants, Nearly all plants, both large and small, were sequestered by the CNT and UGT, as were those in the province of Alicante, while in the region of Catalonia, where the anarcho-syndicalists were in almost unchecked ascendancy during the first months of the revolution, collectivization in many towns was carried out so thoroughly that embraced not only the large factories, but the least important branches of handicraft. The collectivization movement also infringed upon another preserve of the middle classes. In Barcelona, the capital of Catalonia, with a population of nearly 1.2 million, the anarcho-syndicalist workers collectivized the wholesale business in eggs and fish and set up a control committee in the slaughterhouse, from which they excluded all intermediaries. They also collectivized the principal market for fruit and vegetables and suppressed all dealers and commission agents as such, permitting them, however, to join the collective as wage earners. The milk trade in Barcelona was likewise collectivized. The anarcho-syndicalists eliminated as unhygienic over 40 pasteurizing plants, pasteurized all milk in the remaining nine, and proceeded to displace all dealers by establishing their own retail outlets. End quote. In fact, this policy of shutting down factories seems to have been as important to the CNT program as collectivizing the remainder. These factory closures were justified by several arguments. They were unhealthy for workers or unhealthy for consumers or just plain quote-unquote inefficient. As Bolton explained, quote, after the first few weeks of widespread un uncoordinated seizures, some of the unions began a systematic reorganization of entire trades, closing down hundreds of small plants and concentrating production in those with the best equipment, end quote. It is worth noting that Spain was still in the midst of the Great Depression with overall Spanish industrial production in 1935 about 13% below the 1929 level. Production in July of 1936 was itself about 18% below the January 1936 level, so the existence of unused capacity is no surprise. What is odd is that in the midst of massive unemployment, the anarchists closed down a large percentage of the remaining firms instead of inviting unemployed workers to join them. Initially, the workers rather than an anarchist nomenclatura, usually assume control over their places of employment. Quoting Fraser, quote, One thing dominated the libertarian revolution, the practice of self-management, the workers' administration of their factories and industries, end quote. Yet government control quickly followed, or at least tried to. In October, the government of an anarchist-dominated Catalonia passed the Collectivization and Workers' Control Decree, which legally recognized many of the de facto collectivizations. 
With government recognition came government regulation, as Frazier indicates, quote, worker councils elected by an assembly decision of the workers and representing all sectors of the enterprise were to administer the collectivized factory, assuming the functions and responsibilities of the former board of directors. A general attack representative was chosen, in agreement with the workers, to sit on each council. Collectivized enterprises and private firms under workers' control in each sector of industry would re be represented in an economic federation, in turn topped by a general industrial council, which would closely control the whole industry. 50% of a collectivized firm profits would go to an industrial and commercial credit fund, which would have to finance all Catalan industry. 20% was to be put to the collective's reserves and depreciation fund. 15% to the collective's social needs, the remaining 15% to be allocated by the workers as they decided in a general assembly, end quote. Wallaton reports that this measure was, quote, sponsored by the CNT and signed by its representative in the government, Juan P. Fabregas the counselor of the economy, end quote. Thus, the principle of genuine work and control is quickly cast aside in favor of something much more similar to state socialism. A mere 15% of the profits were, under the law, under the discretionary control of the workers. There was some internal opposition to these measures. Fabre Haas's successor, de Santillan, indicated hostility to some features and did not strictly enforce the law. More importantly, there was a huge loophole. Firms had to pay a percentage of their profits to eliminate the exaction. One merely need eliminate the profits. With worker control, there is a simple way to do this. Keep raising wages until the profits, quote-unquote, disappear. Taxes on profits, which is what the decree amounted to, will raise revenue if the workers and the owners are different people. But with worker control, such taxes are simple to evade. Witness after witness reports the abolition of piecework, improvement of working conditions, lavish non-wage compensation, and so on. This is initially surprising. If the workers run the factory, don't they pay the price of hampering production? Not if the government tax away most of the workers' profits. As Thomas states, quote, The industrial syndicalism of Barcelona kept, unlike the rural anarchists, to individual wages and did not experiment with family wages. These wages probably increased, it is true, in late 1936 by about a third over July, but the effect was ruined by the inflation, due to a fall in production, shortage of credit, as well as an influx of refugees from Castile and Aragon. End quote. Thus, due to the weak enforcement and easy evasion of government regulations and taxes, it appears that some workers found themselves the new co-owners of their former employer's property. This created vague apprehension among many anarchists, and experience soon enabled them to articulate their concerns. The anarchist Jose Pera aptly described their essential worry, quote, Fortified in their respective collectives, the industries would merely have replaced the old watertight compartments of capitalism and would inevitably lapse into bureaucracy, the first step in a new society of unequals. The collectives would end up waging the same commercial war against each other with the same combination of zeal and mediocrity that characterized the old bourgeois businesses. And so they attempted to expand the notion of collectivism to include, in a structural and permanent way, all industries in one harmonious and disinterested body." End quote. Jean Ferrer, secretary of the CNT Commercial Employees Union, was able to confirm Pirat's fear up close, quote, came as a psychological shock to some workers to find themselves suddenly freed from capitalist tutelage, exchanging one individualism for another they frequently believed that now that the owners were gone, they were the new owners. 
though affecting white-collar workers in this instance, the problem was no means confined to them, end quote. In short, after being told that the workers now own the means of production, the workers often took the statement literally. What is the point of owning a means of production if you can't get rich using them? But of course, if some workers get rich, they are unlikely to voluntarily donate their profits to the other members of their class. This seems elementary upon reflection, but only practical experience was able to reveal this to the economic reformers of the Spanish Revolution. Frazier explains that at a joint CNT-UGT textile union conference, quote, the woodworkers' union weighed in with its criticism of the state of affairs, alleging that while small, insolvent workshops were left to struggle as best they could, the collectivization of profitable enterprises was leading to nothing other than the creation of two classes, the new rich and the eternal poor. We refuse the idea that there should be rich and poor collectives, and that is the real problem of collectivization, end quote. Bolton repeats a remark of CNT militia leader Ricardo Sanz, quote, Things are not going as well as they did in the early days of the revolutionary movement. The workers no longer think of working long hours to help the front. They only think of working as little as possible and getting the highest possible wages, end quote. Bolotun attributes this decline in enthusiasm to communist repression, but it is at least as consistent with a simple observation that people often prefer improving their own lot in life to nourishing revolution. In short, practical experience gradually revealed a basic truth of economics for which theoretical reflection could have sufficed. If the workers take over a factory, they will run it to benefit themselves. A worker-run firm is essentially identical to a capitalist firm in which the workers also happen to be the stockholders. Once they came to this realization, however, however dimly, the Spanish anarchists had to either embrace capitalism as the corollary of worker control or else denounce worker control as a corollary of capitalism. For the most part, they chose the latter course. As Bolotin writes, Quote, the anarcho-syndicalists, contrary to common belief, were not without their own plans for the nationwide control and rationalization of production. Rootedly opposed to state control or nationalization, they advocated centralization, or socialization as they called it, under trade union management of entire branches of production. If nationalization were carried out in Spain as a socialist and communist desire, said one anarchist newspaper, we should be on the way to a dictatorship, because by nationalizing everything, the government would become the master, the chief, the absolute boss of everyone and everything, end quote. The anarchist solution for this danger of absolute dictatorship was to call absolute dictatorship by a different name. In the opinion of the an anarcho-syndicalists, explains Bolotin, Socialization would eliminate the dangers of government control by placing production in the hands of the unions. This was the libertarian conception of socialization without state intervention that was to eliminate the waste of competition and duplication, render possible industry-wide planning for both civilian and military needs, and halt the growth of selfish actions among the workers of the more prosperous collectives by using their profits to raise the standard of living in the less favored enterprises, end quote. Of course, one could refuse to call a union with such fearsome powers a quote-unquote state, but we need all of the enforcement apparatus and authority of a state to execute its objectives. The more prosperous collectives, for example, would be unlikely to submit voluntarily to industry-wide planning funded by their profits. The nationalists conquered Catalonia before the government made any concerted official effort to nationalize the workers' factories. But it is doubtful that the government would have met much resistance from the CNT if and when the nationalization occurred. 
Describing the CNT conferences of September 1937 and January 1938, Thomas states, quote unquote, quote, although suggestions for reform were almost canvassed, most ideas put forward sought the improvement of the existing state of affairs. The millenarian aspect of anarchism had almost vanished. What was left seemed no more than a federalist movement without effective national organization, which gave general, if grudging, support to the government. Under the influence of the realistic ex-secretary general of the CNT, Horatio Prieto, anarchists were persuaded to accept the idea of nationalization of large industries and banks in exchange for collectivization of small ones and on the land, as well as the municipalization of local services, end quote. While the formal expropriation of the workers did not occur, the government frequently used its control over the Spanish money and banking system to quietly nationalize the means of production. For ideological reasons, anarchists had always avoided working in the banking industry, so insofar as workers did control banks, they were members of the socialist UGT, rather than the anarchist CNT. To obtain credit, anarchists had to either get a loan from the socialist-controlled banks, or else receive a bailout from the central government. Volaton explains the dilemma of the workers' collective, quote, Another obstacle to the integration of industry into a libertarian economy lay in the fact that a large number of firms controlled by the CNT were in a state of insolvency or semi-insolvency and were compelled to seek government intervention to secure financial aid, both in Catalonia and in the rest of Republican Spain. This situation created grave economic problems for the CNT collectives. So desperately did some of them require funds that Juan Piero, the anarcho-syndicalist minister of industry, openly recommended intervention by the central government, having received in his department 11,000 requests for funds in January 1937 alone, end quote. Frazier and Thomas corroborate Bolton's analysis. Quote, there were committees, explains Frazier, which simply continued to present their weekly wage list to the general attack, which went on paying them, instead of seeking to get their businesses going, end quote. In the footnote, Fraser adds, quote, this later becomes institutionalized as the pawn bank, through which the workers of the deficitary enterprises receive their wages in return for pawning their company's capital equipment and inventory to the general etat, a measure which resulted in giving the latter virtual control of the enterprise, end quote. Along similar lines, Thomas writes, quote, in all large industries, and in industries important for the war, a state representative sat on the committee. He would be responsible for controlling credit and sometimes raw materials. His role became more and more important, so that in some enterprises, particularly the munitions factories, something close to nationalization would soon be achieved. End quote. Outside of Catalonia, the central government sought to bring all major factories under state supervision, whether nationalized or privately managed. To ensure this, credit was made difficult for anarchist factories and many other difficulties were put in their way by the government. This occurred even though an anarchist, Piero, was nominally at the Ministry of Industry. Piero initially tried to push through a decree of collectivizing all industry, but Prime Minister Caballero squelched the idea since it would alienate foreign capitalists and their governments. Next, Bolton explains, quote, Piero then redrafted his decree. From the cabinet, the decree went to a ministerial commission that, according to Peyra, converted it into a skeleton. But the Calvary is not over. To put the decree into effect, money is necessary. That is, credit must be granted by the Minister of Finance, Juan Negrin. He haggles like a usurer and finally grants an insignificant sum. 
Finally, the industrial bank intervenes, which reduces the amount still further. End quote. The simplest way that the collectives could have avoided dependence on the government would have been to issue debt, in short, to borrow from the general public rather than the government. But undoubtedly, the fear of revealing surplus wealth to lend would make such a scheme impossible. Even if their physical safety were not their concern, investors could hardly expect to ever get their money back. The insecurity of property rights thus made it very difficult to borrow from the public. So the collectives mortgaged themselves piece by piece to the government, until finally the government, rather than the workers, owned the means of production. Frazier argues that these, difficult, quote, these difficulties might have been palliated if the industrial and commercial fund foreseen by the decree had been rapidly set up, for one of its purposes was to channel funds from the wealthier to the poorer collectives. It was to be financed by a levy of 50% of a collective's profits, end quote. Even if enforced, though, almost all sources indicate that profits were almost non-existence. Possibly, as I have indicated, because workers are smart enough to realize that raising their wages and improving working conditions was an easy route to avoid any profits tax. Even if this could have prevented the collectives from becoming dependent on the central government, the end result would have been to make them dependent on a union so powerful that it would be a state in everything but name. Frazier quotes Albert Perez Barrow, a civil servant and a former CNT member, quote, This truly revolutionary message, the 50% profits tax, though rarely, if ever applied, wasn't well received by large numbers of workers, proving, unfortunately, that their understanding of the scope of collectivization was very limited. Only a minority understood that collectivization meant the return to society of what, historically, has been appropriated by the capitalist. End quote. In other words, most workers assumed that worker control meant that the workers would actually become the true owners of their workplaces, with all the rights and privileges thereof. Only the elite realized that worker control was merely a euphemism for social control, which in turn can only mean control by the state, or an anarchist quote-unquote council, committee, or union, satisfying the standard Weberian definition of the state. Militarization in the early stages of the war, the militant members of the various left-wing parties and unions often did battle with members of the rebel nationalist army. There is no doubt that the CNT's militants stifled military coups in several regions and were initially the vanguard of the anti-Franco forces. Quote, there was no central military body that could review the situation of all the battlefronts, formulate a common plan of action, and decide on the allocation of available supplies of men, munitions, arms, and motor vehicles in such a way as to produce the best results on the most promising front, end quote, explains Bulletin. Quote, nor could such central control be expected in the early days of spontaneous activity and individual initiative. We all remember rights, a Republican sympathizer, how he began to wage the war. A few friends got together, jumped into a truck or car that they owned or confiscated, one with a rifle, another with a revolver, and a few cartridges that took to the highway to look for fascists. When we reached the point where we encountered resistance, we fought, and when the munitions were exhausted, we generally, re generally retreated to a defensive position, but to our point of departure, end quote. Bolton adds the observation that, quote, to make matters worse, each party and labor union had its own military headquarters that, in most cases, attended to the requirements of its own militia without any knowledge of or regard to the needs or military plans of other units on the same or neighboring sector, least of all different fronts, end quote. 
While all of the militias resisted military discipline to some degree, Bolotin affirms that at first the anarchist militias resisted it vigorously because they took their ideals seriously. Quote, the CNTFII militias reflected the ideals of equality, individual liberty, and freedom from obligatory discipline integral to the anarchist doctrine. There was no officer's hierarchy, no saluting, no regimentation, end quote. Unfortunately for the anarchists, this lack of discipline made their militia rather ineffective in spite of their frequent numerical superiority. It did not take long for the anarchist leadership to decide that military success was more important than the voluntaristic notions of the rank and file. Solidaridad Obrera soon wrote in favor of the strictest discipline, quote, To accept discipline means that the decisions made by comrades assigned to any particular task, whether administrative or military, should be executed without any obstruction in the name of liberty, a liberty that in many cases degenerates into wantonness, end quote. While many of the rank and file resisted, military discipline swiftly became common in the anarchist militias. It soon became clear that the Republican government intended to form its own national army. The anarchist ministers objected. Bolotin notes that in addition to ideological scruples, the anarchists wanted to keep military dominance in their own hands and out of the hands of the communists. To counter this move towards a national army, explains Bolotin, quote, the CNT-FAI leaders had proposed in September 1936 that a war militia be created on the basis of compulsory service and under the joint control of the CNT and the UGT, end quote. It took scarcely two months for the anarchists to openly advocate conscription, enslaving young men to kill or be killed, so long as the conscripts are forced to risk their lives for the cause of the CNT. Since UGT held the loyalty of a far smaller proportion of the working class at this stage, the joint control of the CNT and UGT clearly would have amounted to a junior role for the UGT at best. In spite of their presence in the national government, explains Bolton, quote, the libertarian movement was unable to use its participation in the government to increase its say in the military field or even curb the progress of the communists, but rather was obliged at the end to circumscribe its efforts to maintaining control of its own militia units and securing arms from the war ministry, end quote. The war ministry had many levers to secure compliance from the anarchist militias. Not only could they give or deny weapons, supplies, and so on, the government could also put the anarchist militias on the government payroll and could then threaten to withhold money from any unit that resisted the government's decisions. The most important decision the government made was to militarize the militias, in short, to observe them into the government's army and subject them to standard military rule. Most of the militia columns swiftly fell into line. Although it is unclear to what extent this was because they were following the orders of the anarchist leadership or enticed by the central government's money and weapons. One notable exception was the so-called Iron Column. Quote, no column, explains Bolton, was more thoroughly representative of the spirit of anarchism. No column dissented more vehemently from the libertarian movement's inconsistencies of theory and practice and exhibited a more glowing enmity for the state than the Iron Column, end quote. Bolton quotes one of the members of the Iron Column, in whose words there is clearly a strong undertone of criticism of the anarchists working with the government. Quote, we accept nothing that runs counter to anarchist ideas, ideas that must become a reality, because you cannot preach one thing and practice another. End quote. Lest one praise their idealism too highly, it should be noted that the Iron Column apparently so, saw no contradiction between anarchism and terrorism and robbery. Quote, in the early months of the war, he had been able to 
rely upon its own recruiting campaigns and upon confiscations carried out with the aid of anarchist-controlled committees in villages and towns behind the lines. During our stay in Valencia, ran a manifesto issued by the column, we noticed that whereas our negotiations for the purchase of arms had failed because of the lack of hard cash, in many shops there was a large quantity of gold and other precious metals, and it was this consideration that induced us to seize the gold, silver, and platinum in several jewelers' shops, end quote. Around October 1936, recounts one historian, Rafael Abella, the column abandoned the front and went on an expedition in Valencia, which was under Republican control, spreading panic in its path. Its goal was to, quote, cleanse the rear of all parasitic elements that endangered the interests of the revolution, end quote. In Valencia, it stormed hotels and restaurants, terrifying the city. In a raid on jewelry stores, it seized all the gold and silver it could find, end quote. As the central government reaffirmed its authority, such raids on Republican towns became too dangerous. But because the Iron Column continued to lambast anarchist collaboration with the popular front government, the Iron Column found itself unable to obtain resources legally either. The Iron Column continued to refuse militarization, but the central government intensified its pressure on dissenting militias. Quote, the War Ministry had not only decided to withhold arms from all militia units declining to to reorganize themselves along the prescribed lines, but had decreed, although in carefully selected language, that the pay of all combatants, which was in the case of the militia, had previously been handed to each column in a lump sum without supervision and irrespective of structure, would henceforth be distributed through regular paymasters stationed only in battalions. As the decree made no mention of paymasters in units that had not adopted a military framework, it was clear that if the Iron Column were to hold fast to its militia structure, the time would soon arrive where they would all be suspended." End quote. In the end, some members of the Iron Column deserted rather than face militarization. Ninety-seven men were denounced as deserters by their fellow anarchists, while the others caved in and joined the regular army. To be more precise, most of the Iron Column joined units which, while nominally part of the army of the central government, were actually part of the private fiefdom of the CNT. While the communists did their best to establish ideologically mixed units, hopefully with communist officers, the anarchists tried very hard to keep anarchist soldiers together. So eager was the anarchist leadership to build up armed forces under its de facto control that the CNT National Congress freely gave its approval to conscription on one condition, quote, although a CNT National Congress decided to agree to the mo mobilization of the two classes announced by the government, it did so on the understanding that all men with anarcho-syndicalist membership cards could be drafted by the CNT for service in its own militia units. In Catalonia, the regional committee of the CNT stated with reference to this decision, as it should be very childish to hand over our forces to the absolute control of the government, the National Congress has decided that all persons in the two mobilized classes who belong to our trade union organization should present themselves immediately to the CNT barracks or, in the absence thereof, to the trade union or CNT defense committees of their locality, which will take note of their affiliation, their age, their employment, the class to which they belong, their address, and all the necessary facts. The committee will issue militia cards that will be sent to the inscribed comrades who, of course, will henceforth be at the disposal of the regional committee, which will assign them to the column or front selected." End quote. In this manner, the Spanish anarchists abandoned even the pretense of voluntary service in the armed forces, Rather than defend the right of the individual to choose whether or not he wished to join the army at all, the CNT merely did its best to get its fair share of the hapless conscripts. 
As the remarks about the Iron Column make clear, the CNT made no attempt to subsist merely on voluntary donations of time and resources. It readily accepted government handouts. More importantly, the Spanish anarchists missed no opportunity to seize it needed resources. In most cases, the anarchists did so in areas where they were the dominant power. The chaotic looting of the Iron Column was dwarfed by the official looting of the various anarchist committees and councils. Eventually, though, there is little precious metal and hard currency left to steal, at least in plain sight. The real source of wealth is human beings. As the next section reveals, when the anarchists re realized that food and valuable agricultural commodities could be extorted from forced collectives of terrorized peasants, they saw an opportunity that was simply too good to refuse. So that concludes today's section. Um, it's becoming quite obvious that the anarchists were literally just anarchists in name only. Uh, I think it's hard to see any distinction, any real distinction, from the Stalinist and Bolsheviks of the area, though, of course, I am not as well read on them. But when you're analyzing history, is you need to look at the net results of all these policies. And let's take a little exercise in that, is... Obviously, there was conscription of the populace, there was mass looting, there was all sorts of economic controls and committees and subcommittees and government participation. Um, if you look at whether it's the fascists of Germany or the Bolsheviks in Russia, is the net result is mass looting, uh, death and suffering. So does it really matter whether an anarchist communist or a fascist holds those reins of power at the end of the day it doesn't and through the and the perspective of history makes that abundantly clear time and time again so with that being said i'm about to sign off continue to proceed boldly against evil be the remnant be the radical idealist connor j nepo signing out